a fish story, an extravagant, incredible tale. Fishermen have a reputation for telling stories and for exaggerating. One main humorist suggests that if your catch isn't all that impressive and somebody asks you about it, you should say, well, I wouldn't say it was more than four pounds. Such a statement is absolutely true of a seven-inch brook trout, which is closer to four ounces and definitely not more than four pounds. And it makes you look better than you are without actually lying. Our story this morning involves a fisherman, Peter, and we might think it is an embellishment, except it is told by Matthew, and it is a real fish story, although it's admittedly, as one commentator describes it, a strange and quirky little miracle. So that's a good place to start. What we're looking at in Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27, is a miracle, not a coincidence, not a strange turn of events, but another one of the miracles of Jesus. If you've been reading through the New Testament with us this year, then you've been reminded of the miraculous power of Jesus. Just in the Gospel of Matthew, we have been uh, seeing the cleansing of a leper, the healing of centurion's son, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, the calming of a great storm, the casting out of demons, the healing of a paralytic, the raising from the dead of a young girl, the restoration of sight of two blind men who cried to Jesus for mercy. And that just takes us into chapter 9. And it's enough to make this point. As Jesus makes his way through the country, people are getting a taste of what life is like and what life will be like when Jesus is in charge. Everything warped and broken, lost and ruined, twisted and misshapen by the fall, by sin in the world, will be undone. Behold, all things will be made new. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that John's is a gospel of belief. Well, Matthew's is the gospel of the kingdom. This is what it is like, Matthew shows us, and this is what it will be like when Jesus is king. And so we come to our story. The setting of the story is Capernaum. Capernaum is located at the far end of the Sea of Galilee, and it was Jesus' de facto home base after the crowd threw him out of his hometown of Nazareth. Jesus spent a lot of time in Capernaum, called several of his disciples from there, did many miracles in that region, not the least of which is the one that we're looking at this morning. When it came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. The disciples are hardly settled in when Peter is approached by some tax collectors. These particular collectors are not agents of occupying Rome. They are not what the Bible calls in other places publicans. They are not the Roman IRS. These are men stumping for the collection of the two drachma tax, what the King James Version calls the tribute. Other translations would call the temple tax. This is a religious tax. It is not a civil tax. And these collectors are perpetuating a tradition and some would say a requirement of the Jewish law 
that began back in the days of Moses when Israel was in the wilderness after escaping from Egypt. The original assessment of this tax is described in Exodus in chapter 30, verses 11 to 16, which read this way. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who's numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives. The census tax was originally designed to help construct and then eventually fund the care and ministry of the tabernacle, the portable tent of meeting, which would eventually be replaced by the Jerusalem temple. And so in our text, what these collectors are asking is whether or not Jesus, being a Jewish male over 20 years old, pays the temple tax. Peter, does your rabbi support the work of the temple? And Peter quickly answers a question in the affirmative, perhaps too quickly. Yes, he says Jesus pays the temple tax, and then he goes to find Jesus. Now, I wonder if he just goes there to say, I wonder if I did that right. I wonder if I spoke right about that. Or maybe he's just trying to figure out, okay, now that I've sort of put us on the hook for this thing, what are our next steps? And when he, Peter, came into the house, the scripture says Jesus spoke to him first. King James Version says, Jesus prevented him. And we get the sense here that Jesus knows all about the exchange that has just taken place outside of his presence, and he wants to get right to the issue with Peter. On more than one occasion, Jesus has been privy to conversations that happened outside of his hearing. That's just one more proof that he's not merely a man, but that he is God. You can almost see Jesus holding up his hand as Peter bursts into the house, cutting him off with a question, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Here Jesus shifts the conversation to the payment of taxes in general. Under earthly kings, who is it that has to pay tax and toll? Does the burden fall to the king's sons or are the fees collected from others. And Peter answers rightly. He says, from others. In those days, and some would argue uh, that even still, the children of powerful men are privileged. The sons of the kings are exempt from paying taxes. Well then, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Since that is the accepted practice, since then that is the case, Jesus is himself exempt from this text. He is, after all, and by Peter's own admission, just a chapter back, Matthew 16, verse 16, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the, the Son of the highest King. And since taxes are not paid by the sons of kings, Jesus is exempt. The sons are free. But it's not just Jesus who doesn't have to pay this tax. 
But it's all who would receive Jesus, including, in this instance, Peter. Anyone who receives Jesus becomes a child of God, right? The scripture teaches that. To those who believe, John wrote, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. And Paul would go on to explain this as a process of being adopted into God's family. In Galatians 3.26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Jesus is the son of God. And those who receive Jesus become joint heirs, become children of God as well. So the point that Jesus makes is that neither he nor Peter are really obligated to pay this tax. Peter may have spoken too quickly. And it was not the first time that he had done that, and it wouldn't be the last. And so they told the collectors to go pound sand and go away. Right? Is that how your translation reads? I hope not, because that's not what happened. They could have done that. They could have said that. They'd have been justified in a way, but they didn't. They're not obligated to pay this tax. But look at what Jesus says in verse 27. However, however, not to give offense to them. Jesus here enacts a principle the Apostle Paul would later expound, namely that believers are not to use their freedoms to offend. We are called to freedom. But we are not to use our freedom as an opportunity for self-serving. Instead, we are to be self-sacrificing, to give preference to others in situations where we technically are not required to do so. In faith, you see, we lay aside our rights in order to serve others. We willingly relinquish our rights so as not to cause others to stumble. Jesus doesn't have to pay this tax, but he's going to. And his reason for doing so is that he doesn't want to unnecessarily offend the collectors. He doesn't want to do anything that's going to get in the way of his larger mission or encumber the gospel message. Two days wages is a very small price to pay for keeping the peace and avoiding distractions. So Jesus doesn't have to pay this tax, but he's going to, and in a very unusual way. He tells Peter, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Well, this is outlandish. The more you look at this, the sillier it seems. And commentators through the centuries, honestly, they have made a mess of this text, trying to explain it. There is no natural explanation for this. Even if, like a mackerel, the fish that Peter catches swallows shiny objects, why would that shiny object not be in the fish's belly instead of on its tongue? What are the odds that Peter would catch the one fish in the sea that's swimming around with a shekel in his face? Or how could he land it in time to pay the tax? There is no natural explanation for this, although one could make the case that what happens is in fact natural when Jesus is in charge. And the realities, the limitations, the distortions, the impossibilities that you and I have to live with every day, what we call normal, is in fact unnatural. Well, this is plain and simple, a miracle. What we have here is another demonstration 
of the power of Jesus over creation. He is Lord of creation. Everything moves at his command. He's the Lord who calms the raging sea. The one who creates something out of nothing. The one who turns water into wine. He can certainly put a coin in a fish's mouth and direct that fish to Peter's hook. It's a rather extravagant way to pay taxes, don't you think? Much more exciting than meeting with an accountant or seeking out Judas to see what might be in the money bag as if he would give them a straight answer anyway. But perhaps Peter needed something. Maybe he needed yet another reminder from Jesus. I've got this. If that is the case, and in defense of Peter, how many of those reminders have you needed over the years? He does have this, you know. Everything in his hands. And in Peter's obedience is an echo from a John chapter 2 lesson. The words of Mary to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you to do, whether it makes sense to you or not. So Peter apparently goes fishing for the temple tax to be rendered for both himself and Jesus. And here, I believe, is why this story is in Matthew's gospel and what makes it so very special. It is the reality of what Jesus is doing for Peter and what he will do also for those who believe. This temple tax was owed not to men, but to God. Yet if we go back to Exodus to see the origins of it, we'll notice it is to be paid to make atonement for your lives. It is called atonement money. It is even called ransom. So... What is Jesus doing here, friend? He's paying the ransom. He's paying the atonement. You see, earthly kings exact from their people. Jesus, the king, pays for his people. Earthly kings take from strangers, but Jesus, the king, pays the way for his friends. And the paying of the temple tax is, of course, significant, but not the major point because it's really a foreshadowing, a preview of a much larger price that Jesus would very soon pay. A price, mind you, that he was not obligated to pay, but chose to. As he laid down his rights as a son, as he laid down his rights as God, and humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, as he willingly took upon himself the sins of humanity and paid for them with his death on a cross. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This fish story points us to the gospel. Maybe when you first heard it or read it this week, you thought, this is just, just incredible. This is really hard to believe, yeah? Well, how incredible and hard to believe is it that a holy God would sacrifice his one and only son as the payment due him for your sin? And yet it's true. Maybe you heard this story or read it this week and you quickly dismissed it. No personal application, you say. You don't like to fish. You don't even like fish. It doesn't have anything to do with me. But doesn't it? You see, the debt we all owe to God is far greater than anything we could ever pay. The ransom note dooms us. 
but in steps Jesus and says, I've got this. And he pays our bill at Calvary and makes it possible for us to live eternally with God. So I think this has something to do with all of us, don't you? Followers of Jesus may find a particular encouragement in this story that God will provide for the needs of his children as they live in love toward others. F.B. Meyer sees this lesson in the miracle writing, Make Christ's interests your aim. He will make your taxes his care. The good news, of course, is not just that Jesus can take care of our tax bill or any debt that we incur in service to him or any need we encounter because of faithfulness. Of course he can. Consider the promise of Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The good news, the best news, is that in Christ Jesus, God has supplied our greatest need. Atonement has been made through the death of Jesus, and his blood cleanses us from all sin. By grace, we are no longer guilty, we are no longer captive, and we are no longer under the sentence of death. Son, you are free. Daughter, you are free. Your Savior, Jesus, paid it all.